Welcome to Voices. My name is Ian Hunter, and I talk to people. Joining me today is Olivia Rakotnitz. Hailing originally from Colorado, she came to Memphis to open and operate Delta Groove Yoga. We talk about the importance of breath, the essence of Kundalini, and how important yoga is to the modern world. Stick around. Interviews, yeah. Um, shall we start with the tiger breath? What's that called? Mm. What's the one called? Sure, lion's breath. Lion's breath. I mean, we might be <laughs> spitting on the microphone. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> I mean, we we could. I it's a. Uh, what does that do again? Lion's breath. I mean, anytime you breathe out of the mouth, you're stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system, and a lot of people are in that sympathetic nervous system, which is fight, flight, freeze, go, 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 action. Yeah. So um, the idea is whenever you, it, it's actually like neuro, um, like brain, hold on, I'm trying to think, cranial nerves that are in the jaw. And when you open the jaw and breathe through the mouth, it's sending a message to your brain. that's like, okay, relax, chill, you're okay. That's when you like open the mouth. Mm. like, <sighs> Or sometimes you'll see people just kind of intuitively when they're nervous, they'll start yawning. They'll be like, but isn't it a rhythm, rhythmic thing? Like a. <laughs> oh, you're thinking a breath of fire. That's oh, what that's what about. I was thinking. Okay. Was yeah, thinking lion's breath, you're opening up the, the mouth and you're like <sighs> sticking out the tongue, you're stretching your tongue, doing all that. No, you're talking about breath of fire from Kundalini Yoga. And that's something you start the practice with? or Not always. Not So the problem with modern society is we've forgotten how to breathe. Yes. You know, humans are sitting and they're slunched over and they're compressing their diaphragm. And they, um, it's said that we're really only breathing anywhere from like 60 to 7% of our capacity. And in some people, it's even less. Yeah. Or we're, what's the other one? We only use 10% of our brain capacity. Yeah. I feel like as Western people, we're just, as modern people in general, we're doing. I hate to say that the majority of the things we do are, are lesser versions of our ancient selves, <laughs> mm-hmm. particularly in the West. Yeah. I mean, technology is incredible, but we're relying too much on it and not yeah. going into the self and really checking in with, you know, the internal messaging. You know, what what's the internal message board say? And most people are not doing that. They're continually scrolling externally, looking for external stimuli. Yeah. I think intuitively we know the truth. We've just strayed mm-hmm. from it. And it doesn't help that these tech companies have come into our lives in the last 20 years and put all this candy in front of us. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're kind at least of that's naturally my take. addictive beings, so anything yeah. that comes easily. It takes discipline, actually, to, to not be on the technology or to be happy actually that that's something that's a discipline it's so easy to be negative it's so easy to be doubting about things and some of the meditations and the practices that i do you're actually reprogramming the self to remember that like joy is a thing you can feel and it's okay right instead of anger or guilt especially dysfunctional guilt we have a lot of that yeah and then mix that with generational things and 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 trauma and Mm -hmm. it's all one mixed bag Mm -hmm. thank you for being here yeah thank you. joining me is uh memphis's 
premier spiritualist, a master of the mat, Miss mm-hmm. Olivia. What's your new last name? Rakotnance. Rakotnance. Mm-hmm. Formerly Lomax, or is it hyphenated? Uh, formerly. Okay. You married an Israeli, which is really cool. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's, he's actually from London. And oh, is he English? Yeah, he's English. Oh, I thought he was from... Uh, he's both. He's dual. He's Jewish. He is Jewish. <laughs> okay. He's got an interesting background. Yeah. Awesome. And he's a musician, you said? He is a musician. Beautiful. Yeah, so he plays a lot of music. Uh, we do meditations daily, and he'll actually create the music for us, which is lovely. I'm really spoiled. have my own musician in-house to create some really cool rhythmic beats to some of the... We do a lot of mantra meditation, so he mm-hmm. creates like a really nice rhythm that we work with. Beautiful, yeah. The listeners can't smell it, but we have our incense in the room here, in this room that's probably, what, 11 by 6. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. It's, it it's not like, too strong, though. It smells like my studio. It's lovely. Yeah, well, I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to set the tone for considering who was, was, was with me today. So. so can I share that you were one of my first employees 10 years ago? Has it been 10 years since it'll, you opened um, Delta Groove in Overton Square in Memphis? Delta Groove Yoga. Delta Groove Yoga. Yeah, we opened it, April 4th, 2013, so almost 10 years. Okay, cool. And you were one of my first employees. And well, I, think- I was probably um, a pretty shitty employee, but I, I tried. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed, um, yeah, I think I was drawn to it because I just knew of yoga at the time. Um, you were obviously more into that world, um, but I, I I knew about it just intuitively and, and growing up, my mom and I did it as a kid and I was blessed to have been exposed to that. And I always remember this yoga for kids book. I think I might have brought that in and show it to you one day, but Amazing. we used to do that and she, uh, she was kind of hippie-ish back in the day. I think she got it. I don't know where she got that book, but um, this was when the square was in its one of its declines when I was a kid. It was still around, but um, I think a store that had always been there was Maggie's Farm. Yeah, still there. And it was downstairs when I was a kid. And uh, I remember her getting things from there, incense and whatnot. And then we'd go home and open the book and do some little child, little poses. And the kids, they had these little animal things to represent the poses just to help kids get into it. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I forgot how I stumbled across your studio, but um, I think we met at uh, Launch Memphis. Oh, it's possible. Memphis. I was working with Launch Memphis, Eric Matthews, and Andre Folks. Yeah, yeah. And we would um, um, have these start uh, start co now. Start co. Yeah, we would do these like business canvas workshops where any new entrepreneur or somebody with an idea would come in, and we would work with everyone. And my job was um, to find. I was a master mentor, quote unquote. And my job was to find mentors for these new entrepreneurs. So I would listen to their idea, see their idea. And then if they needed maybe accounting help, I I had connections through the accounting world, or if they Mm -hmm. needed um, technological help, you know, things like that, just slowly kind of make connections. It has always been a gift of mine, just finding and seeing connections between people. And you had the idea, if I remember right, for the coffee shop. Oh, I, Probably always it, it thinking about, I always have businesses in my, in my mind. Yeah, no, your mind is, is coffee's good and coffee is good. And your ideas are always incredible. I mean, well, I'll, I'll say this publicly I, or whenever this goes public that you're my favorite Instagrammer. 
Oh, well. The way you view the world, the way you view Memphis and your ideas are just beautiful. I think it's because I personally don't have a social media presence like a lot of people do or Facebook and things like that. I can just focus on on the, what they were built for, in my, especially Instagram, which is for photography, snapshots, you know, nothing too yeah, professional. It's, intuitive. it's coming straight from um, like, you know, you're like this, you know, this would be a brilliant idea. Like, can you see yeah. this? No, I, I love yeah. your perspective on the world. And I loved it then. And I think that was our connection. And um, you were willing to jump in. I had no, I'd never had employees before. I'd never <laughs> owned, you know, a boutique with retail before. So that was around that time, 10 years ago, you had the idea formed in your head to open a, a brick and mortar? <clears throat> yeah, I, I call myself the reluctant yoga studio owner. Uh, before I was at Starco, then Launch Memphis, I had been involved in another studio it was very, it was really wonderful. Um, it was a great community space and it closed very suddenly overnight and the former owner was not going to open up another space. And so it was close. I think we were closed all in all without a community. I shouldn't say closed. There was no community for all of us for about eight months. And in that time, everyone kept coming to me and just asking me, you know, please, 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 please build something. Yeah. And finally, through working with, um, you know, Starco, then launch Memphis and looking at how people should build a business um, model, like a good canvas. I started just thinking about it. I traveled a bit. I went down to Austin. There's a yoga studio down there that I looked at their business model. Um, I went to Boston, started going out to LA and just looking at different models because the models that had been here in Memphis weren't working, you know, unless you yeah. had a really wealthy husband or parents or somebody to just support you. And right. it, it was not working. So I was able to come up with this idea of having three parts, sometimes even four parts. So no matter what, if one part is not working, then, you know, the others sort of work to, to help. So we have the yoga studio, yoga classes. We have yoga trainings, which are only like once a year that we do those. And then we have the boutique where we sell items. Used mm -hmm. to be just mats and T-shirts. And now we're like Memphis's secret little crystal. I was like, about to shop. say crystal. <laughs> Somehow that just blossomed. And then our uh, fourth piece is we have what's called the healing art space. And so we have practitioners that do Reiki. Mm -hmm. We do this intuitive energy healing. Um, and then we're actually building it out even more as we speak to do more pranayama, which is breath meditation classes, yeah. and just traditional meditation, which I feel the world needs more of. Yeah. And then all this was happening while coincidentally the square was coming back online and we the ownership of it uh, had changed hands it sat dormant for many years and it was an outside investor who owned it and thankfully a local entity the lobes um, got it and now it's thriving and you guys are a very vital piece of the puzzle yeah the amidst lobes, the uh, madness of drinking and partying there's always got to be a balance right they, um. they knew that and uh, bob Loeb personally came to me and asked me to open up the studio he said he wanted light on the square in the terms of day traffic mm -hmm. you know he he knew the square from the 70s and you know it was yeah. the first tji friday or tj is that right tji fridays tji fridays mm -hmm. their first franchise was here on the square and was he a prior already um, practitioner of yoga or was he, it, did that come when you guys, because I've seen him there. One of the developers or one of the owners is actually comes to classes there. Yeah. His mother actually taught him yoga. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's That's one cool. of, I think, I don't know, like eight or nine kids. And she, yeah. she did yoga. She was part of kind of the first yoga studio in Memphis Eastern Sun. She 
was a part of that. So he understood the idea of yoga and um, he asked me to become part of the square. So we were one of the first people that moved in in 2013. And I'd say that's fairly rare for a, a business guy to be into yoga too. Usually business guys and developers, they're all they're very heady people. But if you, if you have that discipline, um, that's really cool because it just, you have a different perspective on life, you know? Mm-hmm. And then just the energy of things, I, I pay attention to that and I'm sensitive to that. And aside from just being a, a really, uh, holistic piece of the puzzle and an otherwise bustling commercial district. There's an Indian restaurant next door as well. Yeah. And they're family owned. They've been around a long time. They're yeah. a sweet family. And uh, interestingly, that business model canvas that I was using, I was eating lunch at India or golden India, yeah. excuse me. And they used to have these paper placemats and I turned it over and wrote my first like business model on the back of that placemat. And the owner came over to me and introduced himself And in one of the lineages of yoga that I teach, Kundalini Yoga, one of the mantras, kind of phrases we use a lot is Satnam, which means I bow to the truth or the truth in me honors the truth in you. And it's a truth that's like beyond just speaking honestly. It's like that truth that goes beyond our physical bodies, goes beyond the color of our skin, goes beyond the culture. It's just truth. It's like speaking to that unlimited soul self. Anyways, he comes up to me and introduced himself and his name was Satnam. (laughs) I was like, all right, decision made. We're yeah. going to stay on the square. This is happening. I know. And they're right, they're right there. And they're, they're such a sweet What other yoga studios have an Indian restaurant as their neighbors? Right. And I remember when you, the week you opened, um, it, was pretty, it was just a sweet little moment where he and his wife came over and they took their shoes off and mm. walked inside. And on your beautifully um, late floor, I think you, you, you said uh, around the time that you opened, it was a special bamboo or it's something? It's Cork, okay. It's not bamboo. So when I went down to Austin... I remember you were very proud of it. <laughs> I'm still very proud of it. I love our floors. <laughs> when I went down to Austin, the studios in Austin I went to, they all had these cork floors, and um, we had those specially sent in. They're they're really beautiful. And they're kind of like a white uh, cork. They're not like your traditional corkboard type cork. They're just... There's a softer texture to them. Are they maintenance-free 10 years in, or...? They're great. No issues. No, wow. we, we're careful about not using products and any chemicals or anything on them. We just do a little light, like wet mop on them. And then you, the only thing that you really changed is you've shifted the, sorry, what's it called? The shrine? Is that what it's called? The, oh, the yeah. setup? It was you could, you along a different the altar. The yeah. altar. Okay. Why did you change it to the window side? It just naturally felt that way. Felt better that way. I'm not sure why. I think it was just uh, when people are psych. So our for those of you who haven't been to Delta Groove, it's very open. We have like huge windows on the background mm-hmm. that are um, those windows face out into the courtyard for Overton Square, and uh, then the front studio faces our boutique, and we have all glass doors and completely floor to ceiling windows. So when you're sitting and you're you know, sitting sideways, I think people didn't feel comfortable. It, w- mm-hmm. it was a feeling thing. I don't know how to explain it. So when we transitioned to where their backs were more towards the boutique space, but their eyes could look towards those beautiful windows. Yeah. Because most of the time you you don't really, we're on the second floor um, in the boutique. So the windows, all you see is clouds. So it's just, it, you know, it's it nice. It just felt right to move it. It felt right to it's move the it. the Indian version of feng shui, if mm-hmm. there is such a thing. Well, is there, there, um, there is actually the teacher should all uh, usually always be sitting in the east. And so that's what we had done initially. The altar was in mm-hmm. the east, but it, it just felt so much better to move it. So now 
the teachers in the South. I might be, mm-hmm. you know, doing something incorrectly from like a Indian feng shui type point of view, but no. it works for us. And, and frankly, that's who we are. The name Delta Groove, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I, um, I was traveling. I was at a big yoga festival out in New Mexico that's specifically a Kundalini festival. And um, somebody, this old, old, old Kundalini came up to me and he's like, what are you doing in Memphis? Because he knew I wasn't teaching the traditional dogmatic mm-hmm. lineage. Um, I sort of rebelled against that, always have, always will. And um, I just said, you know, we're just kind of doing this uh, Delta Groove thing down there. And that was where the name came from. Wow. So it's just, you know, that's the thing about Memphis is you just got to be authentic and you got to go with the flow here. You can't, yeah. you can't be a charlatan. People see right through you. I mean, you really have to just like that's embrace so true, isn't it? authenticity and, yeah. and go with what's here. Whenever I visit a certain city to the east, I'm reminded of that, of that <laughs> truth, but we don't have to have that conversation no but somebody many of um my family has asked me they're always like what is the difference between nashville and memphis and i'll give you my very short version right you know i'm from colorado so i'm used to rocks and the mountains and when i first came to memphis i was like what is this place it's muddy it's hot and i actually traveled to nashville i had never been there before i'd lived here i think maybe six months before i went to nashville the first time and i was like oh my gosh here's the rocks again isn't it beautiful yeah but the thing is, what I see now about Nashville is you have to be established. You have to be somebody, have something to really build upon that place. Whereas Memphis, mm-hmm. you know, in this muddy, swampy, you yeah. know, beside the Mississippi area, almost anybody can try something. But the difference is, like, you really have to sink your roots in here and you have to be dedicated and strong in order mm-hmm. to make it. And one of my favorite phrases is, you know, the lotus rises from the muddy waters. So if if those roots can grow deep enough to sustain that blossoming lotus, you're going to make it in Memphis. But Memphis yeah. is going to test you, and it's going to be really hard. <laughs> lotus, yes. Only you could see it through those through that metaphor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree. And we haven't really peaked like other cities are, you know. Um, you know, you could go to any any modern city almost today, and you and they just feels like any other city. You know, you could be in Austin, you could be in Nashville, you could be in Portland. And I do think there's something special here. Not to not to toot the horn of of, of my native town, but yeah, it's it's growing, but just at a different kind of pace than cities that kind of blow up overnight. And when you can't find a local on the street and your rent's like over $3,000 a month and mm-hmm. cost of living is still fairly good in the city on the national average. And because of that, you can really be an artist or a creative and, and uh, really focus uh, heavily on that without having to, you know, work 50 hours a day or yeah, just to true. make ends meet. So, uh, so the studio still focuses mainly on, kundalini but you obviously have different teachers in that have slightly different practices and disciplines yeah kundalini i mean we're definitely the premier kundalini yoga studio um and that's our focus of our of our school we have a delta groove yoga school it's it's all kundalini yoga trainings um we call it the delta groove kundalini yoga because again we do things just a little differently we don't again follow that like old dogmatic tradition we've sort of broken off and brought a grooviness to it mm-hmm. literally like it's it's fun the music is is always really you know everyone really gets into it 
So it's a dynamic. And just for those that don't know, Kundalini yoga is a very dynamic form of yoga. And to backtrack it even further, this idea of Kundalini is this idea of like the original creative essence of of you, of the universe. Kundalini is is a spinal thing? So the yogis described Kundalini to lie at the base of the spine. They said it was around, say, L4 is kind of the idea of where it lies. And so I've gotten really into neuroscience over the past couple of years, and I'm that's kind of the difference in how I teach versus maybe some other spiritual based type practices right. is I'm really trying to bridge that gap between the yeah. metaphysical and the actual like physical. And that's what I would argue. That's what modern people are attracted to. Yeah. And you have a background important. in finance. So you know about that. Too. <laughs> do, You're a rare, a rare bird of a business owner. Well, I think a lot of people in the modern day are have to be. Yeah. We're all multidimensional, but this idea of Kundalini. So it's, it's the spark. It's the creative spark within all of us. But it's not always in that creative form. And so this idea of kundalini yoga is that I call it my personal form of describing it is to say that it's a leveraging technology. So we leverage the spine. Some people call it spinal yoga. Gwyneth Paltrow quoted it as spinal yoga on Goop. Um, and she's kind of correct, but also not. So the spine is the conduit for your central nervous system. So really what it is, is it's a yoga of nerve strength. And the way the central nervous system works is it has these, you know, it's like the central nervous system comes down. They're like cords from the back of the brain. We can all appreciate cords these days, right? Mm -hmm. So these cords come all the way down to about L2. Your kundalini is said to be at L4. So there's a little space in between L2 and L5 that becomes filled with cerebral spinal fluid. And according to one of my students who is a neurologist, she does a lot of spinal taps on people that are paraplegic or have had strokes so they're not like really mobile in that lower center and those spinal taps that fluid is very like gray swampy kind of like not very not very nice whereas spinal serum your spinal fluid should be very radiant should be very clear like this like h2o type element Mm -hmm. what we do in kundalini yoga is we move the spine a lot and what we're doing is we're basically leveraging and pumping that cerebral spinal fluid And there's this theory that kundalini rides the waves of the spinal fluid. And so it it gets that, you know, motivation, that spark to move up. And then it goes up through that central nervous system to spark the creative centers in the brain so that we're not just using 10%. We potentially can open up that infinite potential within. Yeah, and you mentioned music. One of the cool things that I really appreciate is that you you do all these other things. You bring in... Occasionally live musicians, mm-hmm. um, which I think is incredible. You have these, like, was it bowls? What are they called? Singing bowls? Yeah, we bowls? do singing bowls. And, really cool. And I play the gong during all my kundalini classes for Shavasana. There's a sound vibration that happens yeah. with the gong that, like, really resonates. And it's resonating in that spinal serum. And just, right. to, just to give a little bit more education on that, this is kind of my, my, uh, my soapbox lately, is, like, this education of the spinal serum. It's basically the limp system for your brain. And it's renewed and recycled up in the third ventricle in the brain, which is that area that's just behind the brow where the pituitary gland is. And at the back of that is the pineal gland. And the yogis actually called it the cave of the Brahmins. The Brahmins were the wise teachers. So it's like the cave of wisdoms is Mm -hmm. what I call it. So if you learn how to pump and move that spinal fluid up, it becomes recycled and renewed. So it's not going to be gray and swampy, right? It's going to become more clear and radiant. Then it goes into the brain and it bathes the brain and it like massages it and mm-hmm. opens it up and you feel clear. 
you feel more capable. Like you yeah. learn how to turn something that might have previously seemed impossible yeah. to a possibility. And the practice is just getting your body into a, to a place where it can um, receive and, and fulfill that potential. Exactly. Now, that being said, Kundalini yoga doesn't, you know, you don't need to do it all the time. So, you know, we also do a lot of just gentle yoga. I, I'm very mm. proud of the fact that our studio is so diverse, not just in a sense of skin color, but age, body type. We have a lot of, I mean, just it's incredible to see who will show up for a gentle yoga class. Right. Most of my classes are almost always equal men and women, which is another thing that is very rare with most mm -hmm. traditional Western yoga studios. So I love that to see more men coming in. Um, so we do a lot of gentle yoga, a lot of vinyasa yoga. We have a pretty strong Ashtanga yoga community, which is a very like specific form and system and technique. And then I teach what's called Vayu vinyasa. So I have another sort of lineage yeah. that I also work with. And I like that you call it gentle yoga. I'm sure a lot of uh, novice and first-timers appreciate the title of that class. Um, it doesn't sound too intimidating. It sounds mm -hmm. very welcoming. Yeah, we don't even have anything called beginner yoga. We just yeah. start with gentle yoga because everyone's a yogi. And going back to you, you know, with your mom, kids are natural yogis. It's incredible. If you just watch them, I mean, yeah, they're brilliant. Their bodies are so flexible. And um, I remember I could do the... I don't know what it's called. Is it Lotus? Mm -hmm. Both of your so easily as a kid. There's just slight pain. That was about it. Now I have to really struggle to do that. Yeah. That move. As adults, I, need, I just need like, to practice and become uh, more. As uh, adults, limber. our practice is to be able to try to get back into Lotus. So you can sit for these more profound meditations. The physical practice is like one tiny element of yoga. Yeah. But Westerners have made it the only element of yoga. That's really cool. The neuro, the neural part, or the neuroscience part. I guess. Uh, yeah. It's very educational, and then there's other things that people are vaguely familiar with. You know, chakras and energy systems and pineal glands and vagus nerve. Is that what it's mm -hmm. called? Vagus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the vagus, vagus nerve is. Um, is that related to the kundalini, or is that uh, a? I mean, it could be the vagus nerve. Vagus means traveling in Latin, and it's this nerve that um, attached to the back part of your brain and it travels down the back of your neck and then down the front of your body and attaches to all the major organs in your in your body. So if if your brain is signaling that you're in any state of survival or if there's something that like your major organs need to like relax. So in other words, when you're in a place of fight, flight or fear, I try not to use that term too much, but most of us are in that state all the time because our like physical bodies don't understand the difference. Even though we no longer face the, 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 the saber tooth tiger behind the bush, right? right. That saber tooth tiger is now text messages, those incoming didn't emails. Didn't get enough likes. That, yeah. did get enough likes. Exactly. TikTok was not. Yeah, exactly. But all these like external stimuli are stimulating that, that vagus nerve. And so it's just like overreacting. And so yeah. it's telling all of our organs to like, you know, go, 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 go. Um, so yeah, we need to learn to tone the vagal nerve and, and we do bring some of that. There's a lot of new technology in that. Like one simple technique I can actually share with you all. This is kind of fun. We could do this. You ready? You got to sit up straight. Oh yeah. I have adjusted. I was sitting all slouch, but I'm ready for anything. <laughs> so turn your head to the right and lift your gaze and look up like a, like a 60 degree angle and just keep looking, like stretch your gaze and turn your head as far as you can. Until the moment that you swallow, 
and then blink your eyes and come back to center. The swallow kind of comes automatically in time. And then do the other side. So go to the left, turn your head to the left, and then look up. And some people even like to squeeze their face a little bit because it gets those like cranial nerves activated. And then you wait to the moment that you swallow. It'll happen at some point. And you swallow. And then you come back to center. And that technique is actually said to help reset your vagus nerve. Okay. So you can just imagine that traveling nerve, just like sending a message to all those organs to like just chill out for a little bit. I so can that. scroll even more efficiently now. I'm clear-headed. Exactly. No. <laughs> Beautiful. It's really fascinating that it's still very much alive and within us. We just have to pay attention to it and activate it, as it were. Yeah. This, I know that's such a probably Western thing to say. It's just we want to like turn things on and and and, and do, ma- make it happen. What and, we really need to do is we need to turn things in. Yes. Change keep, comes from seeking. within. We, we do seek the without. Mm-hmm. One other uh, practice and kind of analogy that I use with my students, and those of you listening, we do have some people outside the door. That's all good. Hear that, but, um, we're in a bustling building here. I good recently energy. switched cars with my with my daughter, and she has this electric car. It's a little Nissan Leaf. It goes it's like 60 miles. It's, it's great for city driving. Aren't but, you in a B class or a V class at some point? Uh, I did have a, a used Mercedes a long time oh, ago because okay. I did have a love for German cars, right. I have oh, to admit. That's another discussion. Yeah, that is Me another too. discussion. I, I do love my German cars, but I did switch to a Prius. I, I got a hybrid, which I gave to her to go to college. I'm and in a hybrid. It's we, really cool. we, got, we had gotten her an electric car, and now I have it. Yeah. So. With an electric car like our phones, you have to be really conscious of, you know, the charge, mm-hmm. right? You know, like I actually went out to all the way out to Germantown and back earlier to watch a baseball game for my other son. And, you know, I was like, okay, I've got 20 miles left. Can I do it? Can I get home? So my analogy that I use this a lot with just us as modern humans, our frontal lobes, which is our area of planning. It's our area of like seeing the world and making decisions on like long-term plans. It's kind of like the inner blueprint or for some people, it's like the inner messaging board. It really only has a charge of about six to eight hours. And so if you go all day and you're just constantly pulling from that, pulling from that, pulling from that, for most people, they do work more normal jobs. I think you and I probably don't. But for those people out there that are going to work like nine to five type jobs, eight to six, whatever they're working, they're getting home and they are just fried. They are so tired. They are so just like burnt out because they've used up that charge. Mm -hmm. So what we have to learn to do is recharge and getting on technology is not going to help like that. Especially right before bed. Exactly. That will not recharge you. So one of the quickest things you can do is mindfulness. And I think so many people don't really understand this concept of mindfulness and this, uh, this neurologist I like to work with, one of her quickest, easiest ways to teach people that, and we can all do this again, I like giving people tools and techniques, mm-hmm. is take your fingers and just tap them on something. You can tap them on the table, you can tap them on your knees, just tap them on something. And then stop, turn your palms up on your knees or on your thighs, and do you feel that sensation in the tips of your fingers right mm-hmm. now? Yeah. Are you thinking about anything else right now? But for that tiny little moment, you were just feeling (laughs) the sensation in the tips of your fingers. And that is like a tiny little snippet of what we work to do in meditation. And for a lot of people, it's hard to get to that point. And so that's what we do in a lot of the yogic practices is we 
we activate the body so that you can let go of the external, turn off your phones, turn off your screens, turn off your work, that working brain. Um, you did mention I used to be in finance. I was a stockbroker and a financial planner. And that is what got me into yoga is I was looking for something to turn off the inner ticker symbol. My brain just was like constantly, you know, just yeah. like that, like, you know, over and over, just Wall Street, just like in my head. And when I would go to yoga, I would either go to yoga in the days when I worked in finance, I would either go to yoga at 6 a.m. or at like 7.30, 8 p.m. at night. And it was just whatever it took to turn that off. And that is what we're finding is actually when you recharge, when you're able to turn that off internally, not just externally turn off the phone, but turn off the internal so that you can just be in that place of feeling yeah. and experiencing, not thinking. And then that frontal lobe area gets recharged and then you feel better. It's amazing. Yeah. You said it's hard to do, which I believe even, even that I say one of the hardest things to do, especially for a young person is just to sit on the floor for five minutes in silence. They just can't do it. You know, Mm -hmm. it sounds so simple. Well, you have to, and even when we glimpse the benefits of it, that's what blows my mind. We can go to yoga and have incredible breakthroughs. And Mm -hmm. even when we, or we'll do a diet thing or a keto or whatever practice and we see the benefits and then we still choose to kind of fall back into that, you know, just nudge back into the older routine. It's incredible how we can do that. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot competing for our attention, I guess. There is. And discipline is not really something that's as encouraged, you know, and that, that is part of the, the yogic lifestyle is just like honing that discipline of like understanding the physical body. Because once we have more understanding for the physical body, then we can start to move into, um, well, in yoga, we have what's called the eight limbs. They're kind of like this traditional way of going through your practice. Um, the eight limbs begin with what are called the yamas and niyamas. I call them the Ten Commandments of Yoga. It's like truthfulness, non-harming, cleanliness, austerities of that such. Yeah. And then the third limb is your physical practice. It's the asana. And what I love, though, about the word asana is that in Sanskrit, the true translation is to sit with breath. Yeah. So to actually move into postures, but to just be there to be with the breath. And like we started this talk today is most people have forgotten how to breathe. And breath is our literal energy delivery system because we can go, what, weeks without food, days without water, but we can only go two minutes without the breath. And we're barely breathing. We're like just taking little snippets most of the time. So the next step after you like learn the posture, really learn how to breathe, which is the fourth limb. That fifth limb is what we call pratyahara, which means to go within. Mm -hmm. And that's being able to like feel, you know, sense, use the senses like that, that feeling in the tips of your fingers. And then from there you go into the next stage, which is focus. And that aspect is so hard because just in saying that, I almost immediately am like, well, maybe I should go check my phone to see if anybody texts, right? That's not focused. Yeah. You know, so many of us are just like constantly being sidetracked. And then the next limb from that is to be focused upon focus itself. So it's like honing this like very sharp yeah. edge of focus that nothing else deters you. And then that the final limb is what's called samadhi which is meditation, bliss. Like you experience bliss when you're able to progressively work through these And it's not like a finish line, right? It's just getting to a place that's... It's a tuning Ultimately, it's how we normally should function as healthy, uh, 
uh, sovereign beings, right? Uh, yeah, it's a tuning up. And the, the analogy I use to go back to that electric car, you know, I have this car that only goes 60 miles, but, you know, now they have these cars that go like 400 plus, you know, Teslas and whatnot. Uh, yes, a certain Porsche that is on the market. <laughs> One is interested in. Yes, in, yes. Has test driven and uh, meditates and mantras away. But Ooh, I love that. Yeah, anyway, some, some Audis and some of those German cars are coming out electric. I hear you. Yeah. So the idea, though, is in, in these yogic practices, specifically the kundalini yoga practice, is that you are upgrading your body so that you can maintain that charge mm -hmm. for longer than eight hours, right? And that you can also supercharge more quickly. So the other aspect that I use with this analogy with her, this car I have is it originally came with a 110 volt plug. So you could plug it in anywhere. We could plug it into an extension cord from the kitchen, you know, outlet or something. Yeah. But I had a 220 volt installed on the outside of our garage and we had to get a different cord for it. Right. So the 110 takes eight hours to charge. The 220 takes four. And then if I go out to Shelby Farms, yeah. there's like a supercharger. It takes yeah. 30 minutes. So that's the idea of what we're doing. These practices is we're, we're upgrading you know, not just the actual hardware of the body, but also our ability to supercharge quickly. Yeah. And, and to know it and to know thyself, uh, as it were, is profound, you know. Yeah. We can leverage these things. Exactly. Again, I guess that was another Western comment. But I mean, maybe. It's in us. Uh, we yeah. need to spend more time in the East. You've gone, I'm assuming, to has – has the um, – uh, has the studio as a, as a group taken trips to India or have you guys no. done a um, communal thing? Or? No, believe it or not, I've not gone to India. You know, my youngest child is 16. Oh, okay. I my oldest had. is 21. And I just, I wasn't quite ready to make that trip and leave teenagers yeah. behind. I have been to Israel. I have been over to, yes. to London, went over to France recently. As they get older, it's easier for me to travel. But yeah. I have not made the Indian pilgrimage. I'm actually more interested and um, I'm really, I've always been interested in Tibet. When I was living in Boulder, I lived across the street from Naropa, which is a Tibetan Buddhist uh, university. Mm -hmm. um, Chogyam Trumpa founded that in the 60s. And that's actually kind of where my true teachings and true heart really lies. I mentioned that I teach Vayu Vinyasa. I didn't really go into that, but the Vayus are the, the inner elements. Um, Vayu means wind and each of these winds, even though wind is an element, but it's hard to describe. They're like different ways that the energy flows in our body. Mm -hmm. And the Tibetans, you know, they were very closed off. What happened was, to give you a little history lesson on India, there was actually this amazing university in India called Nalanda. And it was in northeastern India. It was founded around 400. Mm -hmm. And in 1100, they had up to nine, I'm sorry, excuse me, three nine-story high libraries full of, who knows what it was full of. Because what happened was, a mogul came in from that M Mongolian, you know, yeah. it was like the times where they were taking over and yep. conquering everything. You see that pattern around the world exactly. in history, don't you? They came in and actually one of the, one of the, um, like the generals, I don't know what the term was for him back then, but one of the generals was very sick. And one of the Buddhist healers, because it was a huge university, there were up to like 30,000 people in this university in 1100, some, you know, BC, I'm sorry, is that right? Yeah. No, AD. We're in uh, AD, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they came from everywhere. They came from Asia. There were there were students from Greece. Like to think about that. I that to me is profound. China. They were from all over at this one university. But anyways, this uh, particular general was healed by this Buddhist doctor, and he told the doctor, "You must bow to my god, or you know, I will kill you." 
And he's like, I'm Buddhist. I don't believe that. And so yeah. he killed him and proceeded over the course of three months to burn down that entire university, yeah. which to me is like one of the greatest tragedies. It's like Alexandria. Yeah. You know, it's like the Spanish conquistadors, like burning all the Mayan texts. Like yeah. the fact that that exists is, is my greatest anger as being human when I find out these stories. Wasn't a very good expression of gratitude for being healed, was it? No. Wow. So what happened was a lot of the, the teachers, though, they gathered the text and the information that they could, and they escaped to Tibet. So from that time of like 1100-something, and Tibet, just by its nature, the Himalaya Mountains are like this giant fortress. You know, it encloses them. You know, and that's how the original, um, the first first Dalai Lama, he was taught by one of these teachers. Like they instilled the information from Nalanda around 1100-something and proceeded to like build these teachings over the course of years and years and years, hundreds of years. And finally, one of the first people to ever actually get into Lhasa was like 1900s. It was the Brits. You know, they they finally got in there and started like translating some of the texts mm-hmm. and getting the information out. And so now, that's some of the information we have, like from the Dalai Lama, from Chogyam Trampa. And what's really interesting about Buddhist science, that's how they describe it, Buddhist science, is that it mirrors modern day neuroscience. Of course, yeah. It's so cool. Full circle. So their idea was that these inner winds, there's a phrase, lung sung chukpa chukpa. It's Tibetan. Lung sung chukpa chukpa. Yeah, I love to say it. Lung sung chukpa chukpa. It means the winds and the emotions run in tandem. So if you're able to identify these five major emotions in the body, you can identify where those winds are. And you can actually create these physical and meditative practices to work with those emotions. Yeah. And that's that's one of the other practices that I teach. And they're not positive or, I guess like any energies, they're not positive or, or negative. It's what we choose to, to do with them. Um, so both Kundalini and Tibetan Buddhism come from a tantric background. Mm-hmm. And um, the West is bastardized tantra. They think it's this like sexual practice. Mm-hmm. What tantra truly means, the actual true roots of tantra, is to accept everything and reject nothing. Very simple accept everything, reject nothing. So when you see things that way, they're, you know, the world is not so polar, you know, Mm -hmm. negative, positive, bad, good. You just start to see things for what they are and what's the balance. So the way they see it, it's like, you know, there are some things that are negative because they afflict you in ways that are harmful to yourself and to others. So like a great example is anger. Anger is an emotion that resides in the heart-lung area, according to this science of theirs. And so you think about the heart and lungs, your arms are an extension of that. When you're angry, what do you do? You immediately make a fist. You maybe cross your arms in front of your chest. You slouch. You Like, everything's really tight. Mm-hmm. So you've completely blocked that wind. You know? Like, it's not we, moving. We act out the emotion. Yeah. Exactly. So what we work with in this practice is... Finding the antidote to anger. And the first time that I heard that, I was like, oh, they're going to tell me that I need to be happy. And I was just like, oh, that makes me sick. Like, like those when you're, Bhutanese. It, well, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, different that's, that's a different kind of happy. That's just like embodiment of happiness. But anyways, the antidote actually to anger, I found this to be a total relief. It's not, you know, celebrating joy and happiness for the person that caused you so much anger or the situation. It's actually practicing 
understanding, to mm-hmm. be open and compassionate. To me, I don't know why that was revolutionary. I practiced it actually with my my oldest son who used to cause a lot of anger with me, wow. just butting heads. What a, yeah. And instead of reacting out of anger, you practice being open and compassionate and understanding. So I, I just called it like radical compassion. Like how can I stand in front of him as a mother and just yeah. be like the most radically compassionate being? You know, like understanding where he's coming from, you know, the the viewpoints he has. He's in a different body. He's in a different time. He's in a different like culture and place than I was. So I cannot project my anger mm-hmm. on him. I can practice what's called the wisdom of mirroring. You mirror that person and you just mirror just total compassion back to them. And everything changes. It's yeah. incredible. It seems like a, a very delicate and complex thing because you your mother in that particular situation you want what's best and but yeah surpassing or being larger than just wanting to be right i think that's something that's we can all learn if we can get to that to that point to practicing that yeah you practice it on those Um, that you love easily you know so i did practice it with my children and and it's not it's not even being patient with them or understanding so that they can eventually come around because that's even that's an agenda, I guess, but just being like you said, like purely neutral and I guess somewhere in there they'll find a truth. Mm -hmm. I might not be what you wanted them to do or be, but yeah, I don't know. I don't have any children yet, but as a parent, I can imagine that was an incredible uh, exercise. It, It was a beautiful exercise because what you then do is you extend it out into others that maybe you don't know so well, you know, and you might get angry at somebody in society or in mm. your community. You know, recently we've had some difficult time here in Memphis. And yeah. these are the teachings I brought to the map for my students. It's like, you know, anger is, is just a poison. And if we continue to fuel that anger, it's going to poison all of us. But if we can, even through this incredibly challenging time, if we can open, you know, instead of having fists, mm-hmm. you know, to open, think about that opposite of the fists and the arms cross. You're opening your arms, mm-hmm. whether it's a hug or a handshake or a high five, you're more open to like, listen to the other story, listen to, you know, that background that that person came from. Maybe they didn't have yeah. a compassionate and understanding household or community or, you know, anything. Yeah, that's really important. I've always tried to to do that, to practice, understand, just stepping back for a moment before a judgment and understanding um, both sides. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like you do that really well. I don't know. Beautiful wisdom of well, hearing. Well, and then... Listening to interviews recently, one of them was um, a girl who was a journalist, and she went to um, to Africa, uh, mainly around South Africa, I believe, and she was uh, looking into poaching. Mm-hmm. And like on the surface, the world condemns the poachers. It's very black and white. But it's pretty incredible because you journey through many, many episodes of this podcast and they peel back the layers and she goes and puts herself on the line. It's very dangerous. She crosses over into a different country and interviews the poachers. And then you find that they have families and you learn their journey to poaching and what led to that. And then it's not that it shifts to being okay. You just see the reasoning behind it. 
mm-hmm. and how their families are on the line and how that type of money can, you know, save lives. And something that I was reading in the, was this book that came out, is it The Psychology of Money? And he, he mentioned something from a few years ago, I guess it was some line in a blog where a Chinese person was countering um, the majority uh, vitriol towards um, workers in tech factories in, in China the people who assemble like iPhones and mm-hmm. we all condemn them. Again, we condemn the act of, of, of um, like slave wages and, and what we see in the West as a horrible thing and uh, sweatshops. And then someone just wrote a little, a little line in a comment section who lives there who said that, well, you know, what you see as a, as a detrimental thing. Um, uh, my mother works at one of these factories and prior to that, she was like a sex worker getting used by many different men for pennies and she's proud to work at this factory for Apple and be exploited by a large company that pays her infinitely more. And um, I think that line led to like a newsworthy thing and there was a shift Mm -hmm. again to not judge, but it kind of puts, I think especially the Western mind in a predicament to, Mm -hmm. to, to, to be in that, that uh, situation of neutrality that you mentioned. It's hard though. Yeah, no, judgment goes into that that same same wind of anger. Yeah. I mean, we might not see ourselves as always being angry, but I think we can probably all say we're pretty guilty of judging whether yeah. we realize it or not. Radical compassion. Radical, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and just to give a couple other examples, um, jealousy. We hold that in the belly. You know, that idea like green with envy, jealousy. An mm-hmm. antidote to that Follow. is to practice joy. That's where the happiness, the joy is. So instead of being jealous that somebody got that new all-electric Porsche, you like celebrate. Like, wow, that's amazing that they have that. Yeah, and I've done that too. That Just that little shift in your brain is pretty incredible. It's huge, but it is a shift that you have to make. And that that goes back to what I was saying earlier, like these practices of like, you know, it is a practice to remind yourself that you can cultivate joy and happiness. That yeah. is a shift because it's so easy to judge. It's so easy to be jealous. It's so easy to be angry yeah. these days. And why should I be? They make 20,000 models a year. There's plenty out there, right? <laughs> so why in the world would I be? Celebrate that that guy got one or girl, that human. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just a thing, though. Yeah, I understand. It's just a car. I understand. Lovingly it's fun to crafted. use these analogies, but you know, the human brain is vastly more complex than any of these electric you know, yeah, automobiles or or phones, but I like to use analogies to help people understand because we've kind of lost we've lost that connection to self and that like technological know how know how of the yeah. self that that goes back yeah. to that tantric idea. Yeah. You know, being a teacher is is not just going out and just you know teaching and only teaching. You have to practice. You know, you have to practice what you teach, and if you don't. The students just naturally know that, or that's just, you know, what Memphis is. Memphis just knows. <laughs> yeah. You have to be authentic. But it seems like a lot of the practices that you've mentioned with breath and whatnot and ancient science, and those are just natural things that we have within us that we can practice to reach high levels or so to there, Yeah, there are other ways. Be that's, that is more my belief, is that we don't have to rely on the external. Sometimes we need the external in order to stimulate those openings, because that's God. a lot of what's happening with those, those. I'll say drugs, but they're not, not drugs, those medicines. 
they're opening up neural pathways that might have previously been closed. That is actually what's happening. It's like your brain's just flooded and like all the closets are open and you can see where the traumas and all that came so from. So it's a guide in a way. Yeah. But uh, so Kundalini Yoga, just to kind of give you a tiny little history on that, this man named Yogi Bhajan came over and it was the 60s. It was California when he shows up and sees all these, you know, he sees the beginning of the Aquarian Revolution, you know, the Aquarian Age. He sees like the hippies, but they're all into drugs and they're burning themselves out. And so he said to this huge group that he met in California, you know, there's another way. Let me teach you. And so he got a lot of these. My teacher was actually his bodyguard. And, you know, he was just like, I was just a, you know, pot smoking teenager surfer who did nothing but that. And then these practices were given to me and I no longer needed them. And one of the things, this theory that Kundalini rides the waves of the spinal serum, when that energy rises up into that third ventricle, that cave of wisdoms, the pituitary gland is dangling at the like the roof of that cave and the pineal gland is at the back. And if you get that energy to rise up, that kundalini energy on the spinal serum to rise up and into that cave, if you can bring it all the way up into the back of the cave, that stimulates DMT. And that is what a lot of those plant medicines do. So there is a possibility of enlightenment Mm -hmm. and this entrancement through these practices, but you do have to be really dedicated. Yeah. This all seems very universal too. You can be religious, you can follow a faith or not. It's still very relevant. I don't know um, the book, but there's probably this book, I'll try to think of it. You would probably be really interested in it, but it was this guy who was doing research on some of the stuff they found at Gobekli Tempe. Yeah. Do you know this? Yeah. And they, they actually scraped off some of the columns and they found this plant residue in the columns and in the cups that they found at mm-hmm. the, the site. And for those of you that don't know, Gobekli Tempe is like 12, 14,000 yeah, years old. Pretty like, incredible. It predates, you know, the one over in England mm-hmm. by many, many, many millennia. Yeah. Um, so what they found in the residue of these cups was that they had been using plant medicine mixed with fermentations, and that was part of their ceremony. Yeah. So they did a study. I can't remember what they were using. I think they were using maybe LSD or MDMA. <laughs> I can't remember. But they did a study with a bunch of atheists to see what they would experience. Yeah. And interestingly, the atheists that came out of those like transcendental experiences through those medicines had all the same wording. It was like, you know, I was one with the universe. I was one with God. Like love is everywhere. It's like the archetypes are living in us. And we, it's as if atheism is is almost an intellectual endeavor that requires uh, a different type. I don't know. I don't have any answers for that, but... Mm -mm. It's pretty incredible. I think that just the disciplines are so important, and if we can just do them. I hate to keep ranking on the West, but it's just hard for us to to do that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I will say, uh, Carl Jung, he actually studied Kundalini heavily. And before the Second World War, he was giving lectures on Kundalini. This is long before Kundalini has even come to America as a, as a yoga. He was speaking on the concept of Kundalini. And he... Um, he worked with a lot of these Indian texts and, you know, we all, most of us know Carl Jung, very highly intellectual, kind of one of the founders of psychology and yeah. what we know of this idea of the psyche and the brain. And he did actually make a really big point that I actually go back to quite a bit is that the way that we as Westerners 
have been hardwired, the programming, not even just the program, but the actual hardwiring that we have is very different than those in the East. And so we do have to be careful about using these Eastern concepts because we don't really have the actual warehouse, know-how, like hardware mm-hmm. to fully understand these concepts. But we love to hijack and cherry pick things, don't totally, we? Totally, we love we our do. little water bottles and yoga mats. And we do, but we have to be careful with it. And this is what I'm kind of trying to teach lately. It's like, how can we embody the most authentic, mm-hmm. you know, way of our own personal, you know, familial cultural conditioning yeah. and like. The, the hardware that we have, the bodies that we have, where we've, you know, those of us born here in America and just like embracing this yeah, rather than trying to. It's, it's almost like we can't have both. You can't be in an advanced wealthy society and you can't truly have it all because somebody on the other side of the pond has a deeper insight that you don't and they might be living off of, you know, potatoes and vegetables and living in a shack, but they're mm-hmm. attuned to something. So. I guess we're always reaching for that <laughs> that balance. We are, but I think it's important that we just try to be a little bit more real with ourselves and go within and um yeah, this was kind of my my insight through COVID was uh I experienced a lot of anxiety like I think the whole world did during COVID. I felt like the world was anxious. You know, it's just it was so hard like I I saw it. I tried to see it from a more wide view of compassion and understanding that we were all going through it. And one of the ways I was able to really reduce my own personal anxiety was just to start seeing what was directly in front of me, which was my own quarter acre (laughs) of my property. And I just, Mm -hmm. we focused heavily on improving that quarter acre as well as the studio. We actually did a, a remodel in our boutique during COVID. It was like, what can we do that's right here, right now? It will improve not just our own personal lives and our family's lives, but my community's life, right? And then in turn, what was really cool was when we started making improvements on our property, all of a sudden all our neighbors did too. It wasn't just a COVID thing. They literally would do exactly what we did. We built a fence. The one behind us built a fence. Yeah. The other people built like a nice community. fence. And we screened in our porch and then people down the street. You know, it was just like, it was so interesting. And as you touch things within your small universe and make an improvement, that gets mirrored out. And so I've tried to do the same with the, the, the yoga studio. Yeah. You know, those small improvements that you just touch and bring life and energy to in this space right here and now. And I think, I think that's what I appreciate about your posts is you, you see, you, you don't give yourself enough credit. I'm, I'm giving uh, you credit uh, here. You really, you see something in things that you see like a life and an energy that could be there. And it's really beautiful. Like if you could, if you had a magic wand could actually make those little touches on, mm-hmm. you know, the properties that, that you see that have potential or the gas stations that yes. could be a coffee shop. Like, can and, you imagine? And then those are just, even those things are just externals, right? I mean, they're, they're just buildings and environments. I mean, I guess that stuff's important, but I think what you're doing is, infinitely more so well maybe that's maybe that's a little gift i can give you is you know rather than overextending yourself and trying to i mean i totally have a wand whole bubble of memphis i have a wand that's personally tied to uh one billion dollars in bitcoin (laughs) and then whenever i want to wave it at something i'm just being i'm waiting 
for the opportune moment. All so. right. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, maybe switch to Ethereum because I think they're a little mm, bit more friendly with yeah. uh, the environment these days. Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, they just we don't switched have over. To, plus the money thing. I've got to stop using that excuse. So many people use that excuse, right? If you have a vision, capital will flow and blah, blah, blah. And things will happen as they should, right? I mean, that is the beauty of being in the West is things are made possible if you just educate yourself a bit. There are people out there. That's what I learned from Launch Memphis days, you know? Yeah, me too. And just attending local um, things related to that, local business things and seminars and talks. And mm-hmm. it's kind of changed how I look at how things are funded and yeah. how, how, how capital just kind of flows to the right vision and the right teams. And I think someone else used like a lumber analogy with money too. And it's uh, just changing how you, how you look at something that you've typically grown up considering scarce, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the whole abundance mindset, which I know can be a little woo woo, but there's truth to that, obviously. Right. Mm-hmm. Abundance, the opposite of jealousy, I guess, or scarcity. Um, Hmm. I hadn't really thought about where um, abundance would be. I'll think on that one. Okay. But then again, it would need to be a true abundance is just what gratitude. It's not an external thing. No. It's, you know, think about what, what we also call money currency. Mm-hmm. What is currency is flow. What is yeah. abundance? It is flow. So being abundant is not just being abundant in actual monetary, you know, green or Bitcoin or whatnot. It's being abundant. in, you know, I see the, the, the one who's most abundant is abundant is somebody who has this abundance of opportunity. But in order to be abundant in opportunity, you have to be open to what's unknown and unseen because opportunities come in the most unusual ways. Yeah. So it's like being open and abundant and yeah. And the way to get there is sitting on the mat and breathing. That's I mean, start. that'll help recharge you and revitalize you. Remember, we're like upgrading from only going 60 miles to like 400, maybe from yeah. like, you know, a Nissan Leaf to a Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of a 110 volt, we're going to get a supercharger. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. That was very enlightening. And thank you for everything that, you, that you're doing. I know you have like a big team and everything now, and you're, it's a larger mechanism than when you first started, but you are. That was a learning curve, by the way. I thought I could do everything on my own, but it turns out, yeah, you you really have to learn how to delegate Mm -hmm. and have faith, like trust in people. Yeah. Yeah, That was a a huge learning curve for me, actually. But I I do. I have an amazing team now, and I I really uh, work on enhancing people's gifts. So when people come in, they're like, so what what do you want me to do? I'm like, well, you do what you do, and I will see what your gift is, and then, then we'll move forward. So slowly kind of transitioning people to what they're best at, whether it's creating labels or social media or photos or some people just like to dust the, you know, the floors or, but that's just as invaluable as somebody that's making labels. Absolutely. Other people are just wonderful human beings that sit there and greet all the wonderful menagerie of people that come from Overton Square. Yes. Well... Thank you again, and it's um, a beautiful thing that you've created there. And you don't say namaste? Is it the satnam? Is that what you use? It depends. It depends. If I'm teaching more traditional, quote-unquote, um, I will say namaste, which means I bow to you know, the light in you. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm teaching kundalini, we say satnam, which means I bow and honor your truth, that infinite soul truth within you. Well, 
I bow to your, your truth. <laughs> Satnam. Satnam. Thank you. Mm-hmm.